For several years now, we have been systematically working our way through the divine book of Proverbs. It's been a wonderful spiritual feast as we have been shaped and molded by the wisdom of this great Old Testament book. We started, of course, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, and we now now find ourselves in Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Now, because Proverbs 22.17 and beyond begins a different way of structuring these Proverbs, taking and listing them much like they were structurally grouped in the first ten chapters, we'll save Proverbs 22.17 and following for next time. In fact, Proverbs 22.17 runs through chapter 24 with a unit, and then beginning with chapters 25 and then through the end of the book is another collection. Tonight, I simply want us to focus on the first 16 verses of Proverbs chapter 22 under the title, The Reward of Humility and the Fear of the Lord. The Reward of Humility and the Fear of the Lord. Now, of course, I take the title for tonight's message from Proverbs 22.4, for it says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And this seems to me to be a wonderful summing up of the first 16 verses of Proverbs 22. And I think we could actually take verse 4 and see it as forming the actual outline of the chapter. And I'll show you how I see that in a moment. I want you to notice, though, also that Solomon teaches us here in verse 4 that there are certain rewards for humility and for acknowledging in your life the fear of the Lord. Do you want to know what you'll receive for following the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? You want to know what reward there is in this life of Christ and what it's bound to be? He says those rewards are riches, honor, and life itself. Now, we may not as Christians have all the material riches that this life can offer. We may not have all of the honor that the world affords its own. We may not live the kind of life like unbelievers do and sometimes even seemingly exciting and dynamic. But according to the wise old sage here in Proverbs who penned these divine sayings, the reward or result of being a humbler, humble follower of Jesus Christ is in fact the vast spiritual riches of Christ, the honor of Christ, and ultimately even not only an abundant life here, but an eternal life in the heavens to follow. What a great thing to both know and receive from the gracious hand of God, riches, honor, and life. But what does that practically look like? I mean, it's not enough just to say we'll receive honor and riches and life. What does it mean? Well, I think this is what Solomon tells us in the first section of Proverbs 22. And if I, as I said, Proverbs 22.4, taking it as an outline... We'll see three outline points tonight. The first one, the reward of humility and fear with regard to our riches. 
Secondly, the reward of humility and fear with regard to our honor. And the reward of humility and fear with regard to our life. Let's look at that first one. The reward of humility and fear with regard to our riches. That's what he says there in verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches. What does this chapter say about riches? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is maker of them all. Now, normally, in the book of Proverbs, the rich are spoken of as those who are not humble and those who are resting in their riches. Not always the case, but predominantly in the Proverbs, the rich are said to be relying on their riches and they aren't very humble. And, contrastingly, the poor are said to be those who usually, not always, but usually, because of their virtue, are calling out, crying out in dependency upon God. But here in Proverbs 22.2, we're simply told that it is the Lord, that is Yahweh God, who is sovereign over both the poor and the rich. In fact, it says He's the maker of them both. Now, again, if you look at verse 4 as a fulcrum in which all of these verses first 16 verses of this chapter can depend, you can see that it is under the humble acknowledgement of the Lord God that either one who is rich or one who is poor must see their God as sovereign. If you're rich in this life, you're not trusting in your riches, but you are materially rich, you do so in that trusting relationship between you and a sovereign God. In the same way, if you're poor, if you're very, very dependent materially, it is because you are dependent upon your God. He makes both the rich and the poor. If you're a humble person, whether you're rich or poor, you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as the sovereign Lord to whom you bow in humble dependence, humble submission. And if you're rich, even if in that station in life, You're not challenged to depend on yourself and your riches, but on the Lord, you do so because you acknowledge that He is the Sovereign One. You depend on Him for everything. And if He blesses you with riches, you praise Him. If you're poor, you depend on the Lord, you praise Him even for your very life, even if you don't have much by way of material means. You recognize, rich or poor, that God is the maker of them all. And then, of course, if you have in that horizontal relationship an acknowledgement as rich to poor and poor to rich that God is the maker of us all, then you are kind to one another. You acknowledge each other. In fact, this particular proverb says, literally, the rich and the poor meet together. That word common bond means they meet together. If, in fact... You have a relationship as rich to poor, poor to rich. You don't despise one. You don't envy the other. You meet together in the various activities of life. But in that sense, you both acknowledge on an equal level that you are creatures of your Creator. You give an account of yourself to your Creator. Look at Proverbs chapter 29, 
verse 13. Proverbs 29, verse 13. It says, The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. A similar idea. Whether you're poor or whether you're rich, implied here in the oppressor, you do have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. You are underneath your Creator. And so, if in fact the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord in this life includes the idea of riches, if you're a rich person, you understand that God is Creator. If you're a poor person, you understand that God is Creator. Verse 7 Verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. This has something else for us with regard to riches and how to understand it. While it is generally true that the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord results in riches, as Proverbs 22.4 states, this doesn't always mean, of course, material riches. Sometimes because of the sovereign plan and purposes of God, it may not mean that at all. A person who loves the Lord might end up in a place of poverty. And it's not always the case that a person who's rich is rich by his own devices, of course, at least on a sovereign level. Yes, they may work hard, but it's all from the hand of God. And in this case, Solomon has a word of advice for the relationship between the poor and the rich. If the poor does not have enough money, enough material goods to survive... He may need to borrow from the rich. And if he does, he must realize that he might become the lender's slave. And it might turn out to be a very, very difficult situation. This might be where we receive that oft-repeated phrase, the rich get what? Richer. Because the rich is, of course, the one who has the money, and they give it to the poor. But in this case, of course, it may even be that he's giving the poor this money, but at interest. Usury, it's called. And that's something that God frowns upon. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 23. Proverbs 18, 23. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. Again, the idea of the poor man in dependence upon the Lord... The rich man answering both his God and, of course, the poor man roughly in that sense. God has a lot to say about the rich and their money and what they should be doing with it. And one of the things that God is very, very angry with is a person who already has more than they need and then giving of their money to the poor but doing so at interest. That was outlawed by the law of God with the children of Israel. Exodus 22 Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, all saying that to take usury from the poor is out of bounds. Why? Because the poor don't have the ability to pay. Don't charge them interest on the money that they borrow. The rich shouldn't expect that. The rich are in a financial condition, a material condition, in order to give of their resources without hurting themselves, without the idea of their being in financial want. Now, of course, it's not wrong for someone who is wealthy through shrewd business deals to be able to make more money. But the issue is, don't make money off the backs of poor people. 
That's the issue. Here's another right kind of financial and spiritual principle in this regard to riches. Verse 9, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. You see, that's the idea. That's the contrast from that previous proverb. If you have what you need, if you have been blessed abundantly beyond what you need, then look out for others. And if you see the poor, and if they have needs, reach out to meet their needs. And of course, while it doesn't explicitly refer to the rich here, the person is said to be generous. Literally, the good of the eye. You have a good eye. It's a morally good eye, and it's an eye that sees the needs around you. Any generous man who sees the needs of those around them and they endeavor to meet that need. The poor don't have enough to eat. He works to meet that need by giving out of his abundance. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, says this. Proverbs eleven twenty-five. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Great proverb. Chapter 14. Verse 31, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And chapter 19, verse 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. You see, all of these things really target Proverbs 22.4. The reward of humility, that is that you're a humble person, you see the needs around you, and you endeavor to meet those needs. You're not just stacking up all of the cash on your side. You endeavor to meet the needs of those around you, and the reward for such, because you fear the Lord, are riches. Look at verse 16. Solomon has even more to say about money. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Somewhat of a same mindset as verse 7, if a rich man chooses to gouge the poor, the Lord doesn't look kindly upon the greedy. If a rich man attempts to make himself richer by making the poor poorer, The Lord will ultimately turn the rich man's wealth itself into poverty. Just mark it down. Those are strong words. It's better to be generous to those around you, especially the poor, than it is yourself to make yourself richer on the backs of the poor. And even in this particular proverb, it talks about a rich man who's even attempting to lend to somebody else who is rich to curry what? Favor. Curry favor. Mistreating the poor, trying to bribe or manipulate others so that you can have friends in high places. This is really talking about humility and the fear of the Lord in the area of your money, and you'll have all of the riches you need, whether it's spiritual or material. God will supply it for you. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, verse 28. Don't worry about your money. God will supply your needs. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. 
You see, that's a person who's not generous. The Lord's not going to bless that attitude. Chapter 11, verse 24. There is one who scatters. Notice, he gives it away. He's scattering around and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. See, be a generous person. Chapter 28, verse 27. Proverbs has much to say about this concept of what we do with our money and our generosity. Chapter 28, verse 27. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eye will have many curses. And chapter 21, the latter part of verse 26, the righteous gives and does not hold back. The righteous gives and does not hold back. This is, this is all of the connections to the idea of money and riches in this chapter. And what they do is prove the principle again and again in these verses, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches. Number two, the reward of humility and fear, that is the fear of the Lord, with regard to our honor. This proverb chapter has a lot to say about riches, and it has a great deal to say about honor as well. Look at verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are honor. Honor, second key word. And we see it right in verse 1. It speaks to this very thing. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver or gold. Silver and gold. There is no greater honor than to have a good name. No greater honor. Greater than silver, greater than gold, greater than great wealth. And Solomon is telling his young sons that honor is to be desired more than all of those things. Why? Because the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches. Honor. Honor. To honor the Lord. And therefore, to be honored. It means to be esteemed. To be having a reputation that is untarnished. Above reproach. To be maybe not even well thought of by some who would despise the Lord, but being well thought of by the Lord and by so many who love the Lord. And maybe even some who don't. John Kitchen well writes this, Ultimately, character is more important than reputation. You can control your character by God's grace, but your reputation is not always within your power. That is true. But working hard, endeavoring to have a blameless conscience. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Acts 24.16. He said, I always do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and man. What a goal. What a great goal. To have a blameless conscience before a watching world and before God Himself. Favor, honor. Those were mighty, mighty concepts in the old covenant age. And they should be in ours as well. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4. 
Proverbs 3, 4. There's a lot in the Proverbs about the idea of having a good reputation, wanting an honorable name, an esteemed name. Chapter 3, verse 4. If you grab wisdom, if you have God's wisdom, chapter 3, verse 4 says, So you will find favor and good repute, good reputation in the sight of God and man. That sounds a lot like Acts 24, 16, doesn't it? Endeavoring to have good favor before God and man. Chapter 10, verse 7. You know, I hear a lot of people talking about the fact that the Bible really doesn't address this idea of having, in essence, a good kind of pride, a good kind of favor. But here it says, chapter 10, verse 7, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. You want to have a good memory now and when you're long gone. To be able to have a sense of pride in your accomplishments that you did what you did for God, for His name, for His glory, that's a good thing. Chapter 21, verse 24. Notice these things by way of contrast. Proud, haughty, scoffer are His names who acts with insolent pride. Verse 1 of chapter 22, A good name is to be more more desired than great wealth. You don't want to have the names of proud, haughty, and scoffer. You don't want to be named like that. You want to have the name good, honorable, esteemed. It's better than silver or gold. Bruce Waltke writes this, Material wealth is esteemed as good, but the social quality of a good reputation and its causes is better. The value of social favor can be gauged by considering the value of gold. Wealth can be obtained apart from virtue, but not a good name. Not a good name. Wisdom gives both. Moreover, wealth can pass away unexpectedly and quickly, but a good name endures. I've known a lot of people in this world who didn't have a stitch of almost anything materially, but they had a good name. They had an honorable name, an esteemed name. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1 says this, A good name is better than a good ointment. A good name is better than a good ointment. Notice what else Solomon says here in chapter 22, verse 3. Here's another way that he taught his sons about being an honorable person. This time as a prudent person. Verse 3, the prudent sees the evil, generic evil, and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. See, he's teaching them this is a component of being an honorable person. You're honorable because you're prudent, because you follow God's ways. You see the evil, whatever evil may be lurking along your path, and you hide from that. You run from that. You seek to avoid that, but not the naive person. The naive person, the simpleton, is picturing someone with open ears on both sides and a whole lot comes in. That's the picture. Somebody who's on the wrong path and they pay the consequential price for it. Notice he also says in verse 5, 
Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. You see, to have a good name, to have an honorable name, an esteemed name, you're a prudent person. When evil comes around, you seek to avoid it. You seek to run from it. You're not like the naive, the the simpleton, a picture of the unbeliever who listens to almost everything. Almost everything comes in and he doesn't see the danger signs. He doesn't see the danger on the path and he runs headlong right into it. And like Proverbs 22.5, he experiences thorns and snares in the way. And he's perverse. But he who guards himself will be far from them. That's part of what it means to be an honorable man, to have a good name, to be spiritually discerning. We'd say it like this. The Christian man who loves the Lord Jesus seeks to stay on the right way, seeks to avoid the thorny, ensnared way, and seeks to stay as far away from it as he possibly can. Notice another one, verse 10. Drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. That's saying it in the negative. The honorable name, the good name, verse 10, someone who is scoffing, who brings contentions, strife, is dishonorable. You see how these tie together? Solomon is talking to his sons seeking to show them, teach them, warn them through their righteousness how to avoid contentiousness, how to avoid scoffing, striving against one another. What an honorable life it is not to be contentious, not to be striving with one another. If you pursue those things, You'll be that very scoffer that he's talking about. You avoid those things, driving them out, he says. Dishonor will cease. Verse 11 has to do with another kind of honoring. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. See, what he's really doing is he's giving definitions one by one by one of an honorable life, a good name. And here's another one. He does two things. He loves purity and he speaks with graciousness. His actions and his thinking are filled with grace and purity. Even to the degree that you live a righteous life and maybe even that rather than you bribing someone at a high level allows you to have a friend in high places. Even the king is his friend. You know, in some ways I think about Billy Graham like this. Someone who lived an honorable life and who was elevated to a degree in which he was praying with and counseling presidents and kings. You know, the Apostle Paul really talks about this too. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. This is really in some ways a parallel passage to this particular proverb. In chapter 2, for instance, of the book of Titus, Paul tells Titus 
in verse 6, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech. Sounds a lot like that gracious speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then look how it links itself up even with this kingly rule idea in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's really the New Testament version of Proverbs 22.11. And notice how he also ties honorable lives with verse 12. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but He overthrows the words of the treacherous man. You see, again, if you are living or endeavoring to live an honorable life, the eyes of the Lord will protect you, will preserve you. And what is the consequence of a treacherous man? The Lord will overthrow him. So, You want protection or punishment? It's really easy to pick the one you would want. These are all just definitions of the honorable life. So, chapter 22, verse 4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and what's the third one? Life. That's our third outline point. Solomon says, The reward of humility and fear, the fear of the Lord, are life. This is, of course, probably the broadest category. And it speaks really of several aspects of life. Here's the first one, verse 6. And this is, of course, a most familiar proverb. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now that's a great life proverb. The question is, what does it mean? And boy, there has been a lot of ink spilled on attempting to come to grips with what Proverbs 22.6 says. It's been used in a variety of ways, by the way, with some parents who've used it as a promise, a claim about wayward children who were raised in a godly home, and they continue to wait for the prodigal to come home, claiming a verse like this. Some have even suggested that the proverb guarantees the salvation of children with the right information, the right training, believing that this will automatically mean that they'll respond to Christ, or at least by the end of their life they will never ultimately forsake Christ. Some have even looked at it and said, No, the the key to understanding it is really that phrase, in the way he should go, believing that somehow that means according to his bent, and that maybe that's a form of parenting where you ought to allow a child to go according to their bent. Some have even said, no, this is really talking about in the way he should go, referring to the old adage of nature or nurture. Is it a way he should go according to his nature or a way he should go according to your nurture? 
And some people say, I have no idea what it means. And there is something to say for all of those things, maybe not in this particular verse, but in the larger context of discussions. But what does this particular verse mean? Well, look at Proverbs 22.6. First of all, it says, train up, train up. That particular idea is a Hebrew imperative. And it's really talking not in a sense ultimately about the child, but about whom? The parents. This is a verse about parenting. This is a verse about a parent who is charged in this command with the concept of training up their child. The training which a parent is to commence upon with his child is to be rigorous, it's to be continuous, and that's the key to understanding the verse. It's training up the child. And then it says, in the way he should go. Now, I think that's much, much clearer if you understand in the book of Proverbs, even as we understood earlier with one of the other verses about the use of way in verse 5. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. That particular word, or at least the concept with a couple of different Hebrew words, which talks about the path or the way. It's not hard to understand. It's not talking about something a little mysterious or something a little unique in this verse that the other verses aren't referring to. It's talking about the way, the right way, the right path. In fact, several translations actually add something like an adjective to way, like right way. Train up a child in the right way. And even though that's not exactly what the Hebrew text says, I think that's a good concept. Train up a child in the right way, along the right path. And of course, that means that you are commanded as parents to train up your children with virtue. All of these things, all of the things that Solomon is talking to his children about. Being an honorable person. Dealing with riches in certain ways that honor God. Rendered this way, I think, the proverb would probably say something like this. Continually train up a child in accordance with the right way. Which I think implies the way of righteousness that Solomon has been referring to. Now, there is a particular interpretation that says that the word, the Hebrew word child, na'ar, is a key because na'ar could be contextually and syntactically telling us, exegetically, that it's referring to an older adult. Someone who's young but who's older. And that at least is true in some sense because na'ar is a Hebrew word that could refer to anything from a baby all the way up and including the use of na'ar for Joseph at 30 years of age. So there's great flexibility here. It could mean a suckling baby all the way up to a 30-year-old man, someone that we would probably have long ago stopped calling a child. And those who would see the interpretation of this verse sort of moving it up the scale to talking about an older young man might be saying that it has to do with that particular scale and not really a child at all. I think that's a bit too restrictive. There's an excellent 
journal article by Ted Hildebrand out of the Grace Theological Journal that attempts to make this case. But I think that's too restrictive because this particular word is used, I think, even in the book of Proverbs, six other times, by the way, to refer obviously to those children who are not just simply those who are older, not just simply those who were headed for some kind of kingly service. That's what Ted Hildebrandt believes, that this is referring actually in its context to a young man who's headed for the palace. He's headed for a kingship. He's headed for royal service. And this is really talking about training him up, inaugurating him, dedicating him. And it's true that train up can mean a dedication, like the dedication of a temple, dedication of a building. And this could be the dedication of a young lad in kingly service about to embark upon it, even like Solomon the king preparing his sons for it. It all sounds good. I just think it's too restrictive. I think this is really talking about a child to any degree of what that particular word could be conjured up to mean, and it's simply talking about the command of a parent to train up that child in the right way. In fact, na'ar, the word for child, is also used in verse 15. Look at it there. This might give us some clues. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a na'ar. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. I don't think that that would be so restrictive in its context in the same chapter to to be referring to some young man who's headed for kingly service. I think that's talking about any particular child and the responsibility of any particular parent to discipline that child because foolishness is bound up in his heart. Look at Proverbs chapter 1 verse 4. To give prudence, this is the whole reason for the book of Proverbs, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, na'ar, knowledge and discretion. I think that's talking about anyone in the home of a parent who is still teaching and nurturing them. Chapter 7, verse 7, I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. That's na'ar. That's certainly not just talking about someone who's young, but it's certainly not talking about someone who's an older young adult either. It's pretty elastic. Chapter 22, verse 15, you saw. Chapter 23, verse 13, do not hold back discipline from the na'ar. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. And then chapter 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a na'ar who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Verse 17. Correct your son, and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. I don't think you can restrict any of those to some kind of older, young, male adult, and certainly not someone who's in their 20s or 30s only. I think that's talking about the general nature of children and the need to train them up. Trimper Longman rightly, I think, says this, The book of Proverbs is consistent in teaching that there is only one, there is one and only one right way. It also acknowledges that there is the wrong path to be avoided, 
The idea is to train a child in the way of wisdom as explicated in the book of Proverbs, and this is none other than God's, His path for any child. The heavy weight is on the parents to train them up, but I'm sure someone's going to immediately jump on the second part of that proverb. Look at it again, Proverbs 22.6. Yeah, but it says right here that when they are old, they will what? Not depart from it. And boy, we want to seize on the promise of that. We want to say, yeah, that's a promise to me. And I'm certainly not wanting to dash the hopes of any precious mother or father who's claimed that for years. They see that as some kind of promise that their wayward child is going to one day come back. I don't want to dash those hopes. But that's really not what that's talking about. It's really talking about in general terms, generally speaking, that a child will ultimately respond to the godly training of their parents. That's a general truth. It's not saying that that will happen every single time. Why? Because we can't, underneath the sovereign purview of God, know the spiritual path of every single child. We can't know that. We can't play the part of God. Only God will know if they're going to follow the paths of Jesus Christ. Let's not claim it as a, pro- as a promise when the Proverbs are not giving us those as though they are guilt-edge guarantees or promises for all time and in every case. I think the two key words are train and trust. Train up a child and trust God with the results. Train up a child and trust God with the results. There's another life principle here. Look at verse 8 of Proverbs 22. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. This is talking about someone who sows iniquity, as it says, and will reap vanity. In other words, it's the, it's the harvest principle. You sow, you reap. You reap what you sow. You sow sin, you'll reap the passing fancies of the world. And then it says, and the rod of his fury will perish. The rod speaking about power. The power of arrogant pride, we might say. And that person will perish. Verse 13, Solomon says, train up your children in life this way, not to be a sluggard. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. That is so funny. That is a person inside a house trying to make excuses about why they don't want to step foot outside the door. And it has nothing to do with a lion in the streets. It has everything to do with there being a what? A sluggard. A lazy person. You see the humor in that? Oh, I can't. There's somebody out there who's going to get me. No, it's just your laziness. That's all it is. This is so hilarious. Look at chapter 6. If it weren't so tragic, it would be funny. Chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? 
When will you arise from your sleep? Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber. You know what they're saying? Just just another minute. Oh, I just am so tired. A little folding of the hands to rest. Oh, just, just give me a few more moments. Let me press that, that alarm on the clock radio just one more time for the 33rd time. Your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. You see, it's not ultimately that they don't have cravings. They have cravings, but they're not willing to work hard enough to get it. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. Chapter 15, verse 19. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. And then Proverbs chapter 19, verse 24. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Too lazy even when the food is right before him. Chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Chapter 21, verse 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. It's amazing. Chapter 26, verse 13. The sluggard says, almost exactly parallel to our proverb, there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, So does the sluggard on his bed, slow and methodical. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. You want to live in such a way that the reward of your humility and the fear of the Lord is life, life indeed, life itself, abundant life. Don't go the way of the sluggard. And lastly, don't go the way of the adulteress. Look at verse 14. The mouth of the adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. I can just hear Solomon's words. Men, if you go the way of the adulteress, it's like what he says in chapter 2, verse 16, to deliver you from the strange woman. That's what I'm telling you these things for. From the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death. That's like our proverb, sinking down to the pit. And her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach, here it is, the paths of life. 
You want to have riches? Honor? Life? Don't go to the adulteress. Don't do it. Chapter 5, verse 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. She's so convincing. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. And here's how cutting, sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. He says in verse 7, My sons, listen to me. 6.24 To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Every single reference says something about the path of life. Don't go there. That's why he says in chapter 7, verse 24, after talking about her again, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. It's not life, it's death. It's death, it's destruction. You see, my friends, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Let's pursue them to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, when will it be that these Proverbs sink so far down into our souls that we will begin to live them instinctively. Oh Lord, I pray for that day for myself. Even having studied them for many years, Lord, how come I don't avail myself of them at a moment's notice? Oh Lord, help us. Guide us. Remind us through these rewards, riches, honor, and life. May we be humble and may we have a healthy dread and a holy awe for you, Lord, so that these rewards will be ours. And that we will live the Christian life in such a way that we will think instinctively with your wisdom. May it be so.
For your honor and glory we pray. Amen.